Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. I wish you a happy new year and good health in 2022, a year in which I'm resolved to focus as much as possible on solutions as on problems. So I think it's appropriate to start this first episode of 2022 with a discussion that does just that. In December, the Center for Social Media and Politics at NYU hosted a conversation about reducing harm on social media, gathering academic, policy, and tech experts to discuss ideas about how to make social media a safer and more civil place. The panel was expertly moderated by Jane Lipinenko, a senior research fellow at the Technology and Social Change Project at Harvard Kennedy School's Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. The panelists included Neosha Roshani, Deputy Director of the Content Policy and Society Lab at Stanford University's Program on Democracy and the Internet, Rebecca Trombel, Director of the Institute for Data, Democracy, and Politics at George Washington University, Joshua A. Tucker, Co-Director of the Center for Social Media and Politics and a Professor of Politics at NYU, and Sahar Masachi, a Co-Founder and Executive Director of the Integrity Institute. Thanks to Eric Opsel at CSMAP for his assistance providing the audio, and to Zeev Sanderson, Founding Executive Director at CSMAP, whose voice you will hear in the closing. Here's Jane Litvinenko. Thank you so much for that introduction, and I'm so excited for this panel. So many heavy hitters here. Um, Welcome to our participants and guests. Thank you for coming. So as Zeev said, I've been looking at the problem of disinformation for just over five years, first a reporter and now as a researcher. And a lot has changed in that time. Um, If in 2016, the questions that worried us were what is online disinformation and how does it work? How do we dissect it? Um, and what what is its impact? Today, its impact is pretty undeniable. Uh, We've collectively witnessed how network hate and harassment have undermined our institutions, and not just the US, but globally as well. Um, Harassment and false information and hyper-partisanship have wreaked havoc around the world. And so today, the question is not what are these issues and how do they work? The question is how do we reduce societal harms that they cause? And the reason why we talk about reducing harms and not eliminating them is because it's a very tricky problem and there won't be a silver bullet. Uh, The companies hosting the harmful content and profiting from it boast billions of users worldwide, and they frequently fall down on issues of moderation, especially in non-English speaking communities. Regulators worldwide are looking at the delicate dance of addressing the problem without stifling speech, And meanwhile, disinformation, hate speech, and polarization actively hurt our citizens and our democracies. So harmful information on social media is a multifaceted problem, and it's going to require equally multifaceted solutions. So that's what we'll get into today. Uh, The first person I'd like to bring in is Neosha Roshani, who's the Deputy Director of the Content Policy and Society Lab and a Fellow of the Program on Democracy and Internet at Stanford University. She's a multi-sectoral social scientist, innovator, and global connector at the Nexus of Technology, Business, and Human Rights. She has experience in research, policy, and practice working in more than 25 countries in directing organizations and programs, establishing strategic partnerships, and working with entrepreneurs, philanthropy, and the private and public sectors. Neusha, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Dane. Um, It's really a great honor to be um, sharing the floor with really fantastic people today. I'm connecting from Brazil, so I'm happy to also bring a lot of um, the Brazilian reality to the conversation today. And as Jane said, you know, since the creation of the first content platforms, uh, our main concern initially was how do we find more users, right? How do we increase more and more users. As this information basically expanded exponentially, um, it has become really urgent for industries, but not just industries, right? Governments, um, civil society has been trying to address this, academics have been trying to write about this, to think about the most efficient ways to ensure that their content was safe and accurate, as well as their products, not just content. So today, these platforms um, 
circulate and share massive amounts of unverified information, which can spark uh, or fuel violent uprisings and conflicts um, like we currently see in Ethiopia um, and we've seen in other parts of the world, can lead to the spread of deadly viruses, um, infections, impacting social stability in many countries, affecting really millions of lives. One thing that we really, I really like to focus on um, and discuss is that while we have uh, a lot of the discussions and discourses and, and policies and initiatives really center on uh, are centered in the US and Europe, the large majority of the users are actually in, in other parts outside of the US and Europe, which um, we you know, often call it the global south, but um, as my co-founder um, Julie likes to call it the global majority. The global audience is really fixated on the impact of social media and Western democracies, largely leaving out um, the global majority. The impact is felt in conflict areas and regions where companies have the largest number of users and platform engagement, but yet there's completely almost, you know, a concern on accountability or initiative on accountability is almost zero. Um, this underinvestment of companies and impact the tech causes increases both costs for the companies and even the U.S. governments. So um, looking at, uh, especially over here in, in light of election, the Brazilian elections next year, as Jane said, creates a lot of, a lot of um, polarized communities. Um, people are really scared about what's going to happen next year, their safety. Um, and so it's, it's I'm really in the midst of, of a lot of this conversation. But a lot of this conversation is very much very much remains in Brazil and very little of it, not just in Brazil and other parts of the world as well, very little of it leaves Brazil and this expertise leaves Brazil to inform, for example, the way that we do things um, in Washington, D.C. or in the Silicon Valley. So really looking beyond issues of uh, and discussions related to leaving up or taking down content online, we have a strong focus on that, are really those related to content policy that starts at content or product creation to process to the rules put in place to regulate that content. But many of these policies are thought, designed, and implemented by each sector in regional silos and in isolation to each other. We keep on asking ourselves how to mitigate the harms of disruptive technologies and platforms as we come up with more and more with innovation, how to, how to ensure that we think about all the components, intersectionalities, the realities, the context, context um, languages, the cultural factors, and basically the diversity of these factors and realities reflected online. But yet we are not ready to decentralize the decisions. The design of our products and the policies to include the diversity and knowledge of these perspectives uh, of the most affected um, people and communities by our innovation and disruptive technologies. So with that in mind, uh, we created the content policy in um, Society Lab at Stanford University, really looking at um, identifying solutions to the main challenges of moderating content online while respecting fundamental human rights. And that's um, like very much a topic du jour. Um, we want to, we don't have the answers, but we're prototyping a model um, for like a multi-stakeholder model that takes into account the knowledge and expertise of governments, of, of civil society, of private companies, um, and then trying to identify and implement solutions to the main challenges, right? Um, so we use a very much a proactive and contextualized approach. Uh, we have experts and, and um, knowledge producers uh, everywhere in the world, right? So we have, we're setting up um, international knowledge hubs to really try to decentralize that, that decision-making from Silicon Valley, from DC, and then to really include those perspectives and what's really happening. So they see the relevance of these policies um, impacting their lives, uh, and then to make the knowledge as horizontal as possible. Since the launch of the lab in September, we have hosted a series of workshops and public briefings. The first workshop looked at content, uh, content moderation of dangerous organizations, really responding to everything that was happening um, in the media, but also in the recent um, events in Afghanistan and thinking about, you know, what is it, what is our role and what, is that, what do we have to do considering that these companies are operating globally, but yet they're abiding by US laws, right? So how is it that we position ourselves we think these laws, um, but then how is it that, that you know, those laws impact people in Afghanistan or Nigeria or other parts of the world. Uh, and then what do we mean by dangerous organizations? You know, how is it that we are enlist certain organizations on the terrorist list or, you know, different kind of lists? It's very, it's very much, uh, it's very confusing. And yet there's not, 
there's very little information and kind of knowledge sharings between the different stakeholders. Um, one of the participants we had in our roundtable discussion in that workshop was uh, from the Nigerian government. And it was only then that we, we found out that when um, the president's you know, post was taken out by Twitter, it was done so by um, automated uh, regulation. So it was, it was not, it wasn't a content moderation with a knowledge of the context in Nigeria, thinking and, and understanding what that post is about, it was just taken down. But it caused, caused a lot of turmoil. It put a lot of people's um, safety, especially the activists at risk. They're not able to really voice out their concerns about everything that was happening. So it was, it was just, it was something that could have been mitigated, that could have been avoided, but yet it created a lot of issues. The second workshop that we had was looking at content moderations beyond social media platforms. We're very rarely thinking about, you know, um, we had um, content like, for example, uh, platforms like Dropbox or Shopify or GitHub. Like, how is it that they, they, you know, they look at harmful content or how is it that they deal with it? What are their policies in play? And really discussing and sharing that knowledge. It was a very dynamic conversation. Um, we also, we will have our next workshop in February, looking at um, the approaches of civil society to um, harmful content online. What is it that they've been doing? And we have um, representative from Indonesia, Brazil, and South Sudan. And then we'll have, you know, follow up by the perspective approaches of of um, governments and really thinking about bringing together India, Brazil, and France, looking at the elections next year. It's going to be a very dynamic conversation. We also had a public briefing bringing together Ethiopian activists and experts to discuss what is happening in Ethiopia. We have a very misconstrued you know, knowledge uh, of what's happening in Ethiopia. There's a misinformation that's been disseminated by Western news media that caused a lot of issues that really fueled the conflict in Ethiopia. And, but nothing has been done about it, right? So we have a very limited knowledge. And then we put together um, experts from the US. Yes, they have expertise, but they'll never have that much expertise as those you know, located, um, those situated in, the, you know, in Ethiopia who are there to see what's happening and not just some. Um, so a lot of those news platforms news media basically got a lot of their information from Facebook posts, right? They took Facebook posts, it was unverified, they disseminated as, um, as facts, and it wasn't verified. And then a lot of people took that, those uh, articles basically as evidence of what was happening in Ethiopia. So it just, it's, it's a complete mess at the moment, but yet there's very little that's been done about it. So it's just, it was, um, we basically created the lab to really bring together a safe space to bring together representative from academia, from the private sector, from civil society that we see a lot of, for example, these um, industries who are very concerned about how is it that we increase our engagement with civil society, right? We're not able to, to include them in the policy development and the design of our products, but how is it that we're able to, you know, we can create that bridge between civil society and what we're doing in, in Silicon Valley. And like I said earlier, you know, the main thing is include them in the design of the products and the policies, but yet we're not doing this. Like we're never ready to do this. So it's really important that we think about decentralizing. It's really important that as we see, especially with the pandemic, um, as, uh, as we realize even more that everything that we do is global, is interconnected, that we are able to decentralize and really level up that knowledge sharing and production. So it includes the perspective and realities of people around the world. Um, and just last but not least, like a lot of things that are happening in Brazil, for example, at the moment, it's very, I'm very worried. I'm not Brazilian myself, but I've been working in Brazil for a very long time. And I'm very worried about what's happening because unless we're addressing the, those misinformative journalistic practices, but also, um, you know, kind of intervening in what these, um, in keeping, holding these platforms accountable to what is happening um, in other countries other than the U.S. and 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 Europe, we're going to we're going to create more and more conflict. I mean, I'm just really worried that something is going to happen next year in Brazil unless something is done. And then, you know, there's a lot of news that came out, open news, that a lot of these platforms are basically lobbying heavily against a hate speech law that's been uh, that's trying to pass basically to to keep those those platforms accountable in Brazil. A lot of this news doesn't really leave um, Brazil, so it's that's why this knowledge sharing is key. And um, with that, I'd love to I'll leave the floor to my colleagues to to do a deeper dive into the the issues that we're trying to address today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next, I'd like to bring in Rebecca Trumbull, who is an associate professor at the School of Media and Public Affairs and the director of the Institute for Data, Democracy, and Politics at George Washington University. So Rebecca's research focuses on political communication, digital research methodology, and research ethics, 
and she's particularly interested in political discourse on social media, as well as the spread and impact of online misinformation. Uh, Rebecca, I'll leave it to you for the introduction. Thank you so much, Jane. And, and let me echo um, the earlier gratitude for uh, including me in this esteemed panel. I've been thinking about these issues of uh, how we improve online safety, the health of online environments for a really long time um, from a number of different angles. But today I'm going to focus on um, a particular project that has just recently gotten off the ground that sort of brings together, I think, a lot of the issues that I've been thinking about under one umbrella. Um, the project we're calling Expert Voices Together, um, it's supported by Phase 1 um, Convergence Accelerator Grant from the NSF. So we're working on building a prototype that will help assist members of expert communities who are facing um, coordinated campaigns of online harassment. And really the, the perspective begins from the notion that, you know, the need for this tool, the urgency of the work is so great because trust in our information ecosystems is at an all-time low. And yet the, the very experts who are best equipped to counter misperceptions to ultimately increase trust in information that's available, they themselves become the targets of abuse and distortion. Um, they're facing violent threats, vicious smears, demeaning attacks. Um, ultimately, the experts are placing themselves at truly incredible risk. And research shows that these risks are particularly severe for female journalists. Unfortunately, you know, we find that experts facing these attacks tend to receive little support, whether that's from bystanders, their employers, or of course, the online platforms themselves. In fact, the reporting systems that have been set up by the platforms tend to further traumatize victims, forcing them to comb through uh, really all of the heinous content to report posts uh, one by one. And so as a result, we know that many experts go silent. Um, whether we're talking about journalists, uh, scientists, public health officials, election officials, they're moving their voices offline. Some of them are even walking away from their jobs um, altogether. Ultimately, this leaves the trolls to claim victory and perpetuate the culture of abuse with ultimately devastating consequences for already low levels of trust in the information ecosystems. The team that we put together to work on this project is bringing together specialists from academia, from different disciplines in academia, from media and civil society, all of whom have been working on these issues for years. In fact, most of the members of our teams have not only witnessed, but indeed experienced the impacts of online harassment firsthand. And so bring a sort of both intellectual, but also personal passion and commitment to making the spaces safer for everyone, but, but particularly for um, vulnerable experts. And, and so with Expert Voices Together, we're working on building a secure technical system that incorporates features for rapid intake by trained supporters. You can think of a kind of cross uh, crisis hotline model, as well as rapid response to and monitoring of ongoing threats. And so we hope that this monitoring in particular will allow us to collect a really rich set of data um, on the sources and flows of these attacks so that we can ultimately feed that back into a better understanding of where they're coming for and, and think about platform design itself. Um, at the same time, we're developing public uh, service campaign materials that will help experts better understand how to protect themselves, but really crucially help public bystanders know the best ways that they can intervene to um, support without actually re-traumatizing those who um, are experiencing harassment. And then crucially, one of the things that I really want to underline that I think is, is essential in all of this work is that we shift our thinking about solutions to online harms, that we, we shift our thinking about the ways to make online spaces safer and healthier from uh, the type of work that focuses on placing the onus on the individuals themselves, 
even when we're talking about things like how do we reconfigure the platform's reporting systems, so often the impetus, the solutions that are come up with, that, that we come up with, the sort of technical solutions that we come up with, actually are just about making it easier for the individual, right, to respond to things. Ultimately, I believe, our team believes that we have to shift that responsibility to institutions. So this means on the one hand that we shift the responsibility to the organizations that employ these experts, right? The experts who are facing these campaigns, who are putting themselves through trauma, who are facing threats, are ultimately doing so in service of, right, their larger employer um, and their careers and so on. And so we need employers to, to step up and take um, financial and well beyond financial responsibility for supporting those who are facing these threats. Um, but then, of course, we also need the platforms to step up and take responsibility. And so this is where our project um, you know, is really, really trying to build at the same time that we're focused on figuring out the ways that we can use best practices from trauma-informed care to provide direct support, community-based support to th those who are facing the harassment. We also are working to collect as much information as possible to feed back into the heart of platform design questions. Um, and so, you know, going back to some of the things that Neosha was raising at the very beginning about how important it is to have those who are affected be part of, have a voice in the design itself. We think that that is absolutely essential. And we want the platforms to be talking to and thinking through what these harms look like, right? Be talking to the people who are experiencing the harms and not just right, sort of nameless, faceless experts who have some sense of what, oh, this is a, you know, an interesting technical feature from an engineering perspective. So that's, you know, in a nutshell, the heart of the work that we're doing. Um, we feel, you know, a, a profound commitment to doing this well, to doing it right, and yet at the same time, an incredible, you know, the, the weight of this incredible responsibility. Thank you for that, Rebecca. To, to continue the discussion, I'm going to bring in Joshua Tucker, who's a professor of politics um, at New York University and one of the co-founders and co-directors of NYU's Center for Social Media and Politics. His research has examined topics such as partisan echo chambers, online hate speech, the effects of exposure to social media on political knowledge, online networks and protest, disinformation and fake news, how authoritarian regimes respond to online opposition, and um, of course, Russian bots and trolls. Joshua, I'll, uh, I'll kick it over to you. Thank you so much, Jane. And I, and I wanna thank uh, Nusha and Rebecca already. This has already been incredibly informative. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible uh, pleasure and honor to be a part of it. The stuff you're talking about is so unbelievably interesting. I'm going to take us in a little different, in a slightly different direction, which is was asked to talk about research that we've been doing at the Center for Social Media and Politics on ways to test reducing harms online. And, and we've been thinking about this in terms of sort of three general areas where we've been doing research. And this is just where we where our research interests have laid recently. Um, the first is, is thinking about the harm of people's, uh, in a, a bit, people's exposure to false information. So thinking about ways to improve people's ability to discern the veracity of news. The second, also on disinformation, is, is thinking about interventions that could improve people's exposure to low-quality news or people's reliance on low-quality news when they're online. Um, and the third, which is more closely tied to what uh, Rebecca was just talking about, is ways to reduce the use of harmful speech uh, online. And I'm going to share some results on all three of these. But what I want to start with is an overall plea that whenever we're thinking about after all the super important work that Rebecca's talking about and Nisha's talking about, about how do you get inputs on this? How do you get design things? So that's like one end of it. Like where are the ideas coming from that are about the theme of this panel, reducing online harms. But on the implementation side, the plea is that like when we go to implement measures that are designed to reduce online harms, that they get tested first with rigorous analyses of impact before we go forward and, and you know, roll them out on platforms that, as was said, affect billions of people. Because the stakes are so high 
given the scale of social media and given the ability of things to go viral and including, you know, interventions to go viral. And interventions can have unanticipated uh, uh, unanticipated effects, especially when we think that these are interventions that are happening in kind of very complex networks with lots of different things going on. So to begin with the subject of unanticipated effects, let me begin by talking about some work we've done on people's ability to identify the veracity of news they encounter online. Um, and we started, we've run a lot of these uh, tests and I'm happy to talk more about them during Q&A, but the one I'm gonna talk about today is almost the simplest suggestion you can imagine saying to someone, you know, somebody says, hey, I saw this, I read this thing online and it said some thing that's, you know, totally nuts, right? And you're like, well, did you look to check if there was any sort of corroborating evidence to support that, that you know, thing that you've read that seems crazy to me, right? So it seems like the simplest advice, don't, this is what we would tell our kids, don't just believe it, see if you can find corroborating evidence. So this seems like it would make a lot of, a lot of sense. However, as part of a larger study, when we were testing all sorts of things having to do with people's ability to identify the veracity of news and testing a number of different interventions in this regard, we set up a randomized control trial to test whether or not actually searching for additional information online made people better at discerning whether false news was indeed correctly false. Um, and the ways we did this is we asked people to assess veracity of some news stories, and some of them were randomly assigned to search for information and some of them were not assigned to search for information. So this was what's called a between subjects test where we had people with the same story, some searching, some not. And we also ran a series of within subject experiments where we asked people to assess whether a news story was true, then we had them go out and search for information. And then we gave them a chance to change their answer if they wanted after they had searched for information. And we did this with news that had appeared in the past 24 hours. So news stories that had just appeared online, which is when most people encounter a lot of uh, people encounter news and before we have the world of fact checks and, and polyfact and all these folks to weigh in on things. This was part of a much larger project that had to do with crowdsourcing fake news. And some of you will know, we just published a paper on the crowdsourcing part of it in the new Journal of Online Trust and Safety, speaking you know, very near and dear to the stuff we're talking about here today out of Stanford as well. So huge uh, heads up for that new journal, but we just published our results from that. But just to say a tiny word about the pipeline we set up, as part of this larger project, we were collecting articles daily um, and we ran this from uh, December of 1919 into February, into January, November of 1919 into January of 2020, which if you remember was a kind of interesting time in the world. So we actually re-ran it again after the COVID, after COVID hit in May of 2020, May and June of 2020 and ran a separate study looking at just sort of COVID related information. And what we did was we sent out, we, would, we had these streams of articles um, and we had five different streams of articles, three streams of which were from low quality news sources. And they were sort of left-leaning, right-leaning and couldn't tell. And every day we'd take the most popular news story that had appeared in the past 24 hours and we'd send it out to 90 ordinary citizens, uh, but also six professional fact checkers. And we use the professional fact checkers as our sort of ground truth. All right, our findings, which came back, were first that on average searching made people more likely to believe true news when the news was true, that more likely to believe that true news was true. But, and here's the unanticipated consequence, they also became more likely to believe that false news was true. And this held for COVID related information uh, as well. This was a surprising, unanticipated finding, not what we had pre-registered as our expectation for what was gonna happen. And so we re-ran another study on this where we actually hooked people up to, we allowed people allowed us to track their browsing behavior. So we had captured their browsing data. And what we found was that our findings were being driven by searches when they returned low quality news and by respondents who were in the lower half of digital literacy. So both of those conditions had to hold. For people who were in higher digital literacy searching for information, they were they, that didn't make them more likely to believe false news was true. And for people even in lower levels of digital information, if you had high quality news came back. But if you had both of those hold, then you became more likely to believe in false information. So for evaluating interventions, this is suggesting potential value of digital literacy training, but it also raises the potential dangers of telling people to just go search for information. It's not a really good public campaign to say, go search for information 
if you know what you're talking about, right? Like that's not a real thing that's gonna work. This plays a big role of Dana Boyd's concept of data voids, of when you go search for information that mainstream media is not talking about, you may encounter because of the the information ecosystem that arises around false news, you may just encounter more of that false news. But also it reminds us of QAnon's motto, motto, which was educate yourself, right? That takes on a new and kind of eerier function when you start thinking about these results. All right, so to follow up with reliance on low quality news, if the quality of news sites returned by search is a problem, what if we just tell people about their quality? So in another study, we did a randomized control trial with browsing data where we assigned um, half of our respondents to just browse normally and half of our respondents had something called NewsGuard installed, which gave a little green symbol before any uh, hyperlink that went to a trustworthy news source and a little red symbol before something that went to a non-trustworthy source. And we tracked these people for a couple of weeks to see if people would consume on average higher quality news if they were getting this feedback about what was higher quality and low quality. Much to our disappointment, on average, this had zero effect, which was really, again, not what we were expecting. However, we did find that among people who before the study were our highest consumers, the top two deciles of low quality news, for this population, actually visit to low quality news sites did seem to go down. Now we hadn't pre-registered and we didn't have enough power to do this definitively, um, but it, the, suge- the findings are suggestive that actually for target populations, this may actually have been something that was helpful. And so more research needs to be done in that regard. Finally, very quickly to just talk about harmful speech here, we ran a study where we were motivated by the question of what do you do about people using hateful speech on platforms? Right. One option is you can kick them off the platforms, but then they might go to other platforms. And some of those people might go to other platforms that are more radicalizing. And you might inadvertently be kicking people who are maybe low level users into areas where they're going to get radicalized and, and put into sort of more intense communities in this regards. So we were asking, was there something we could do short of kicking people off platforms that might reduce their use of hate speech? So this is a piece we just recently published in Perspectives on Politics. Um, and we built up, and this was under a, a PhD student in the lab, Mick Yildrum, built up this amazing kind of innovative pipeline to find people who had followed someone who had gotten kicked off the platform after using hate speech and was using hate speech themselves. And we ran a randomized control trial where we targeted these folks and we sent them a variety of different theoretically informed warnings that they too might get kicked off the platform for using hate speech. And as some journalists have picked up on our, our warnings, this wasn't what we were sort of focusing on, but they were fairly polite. That was the thing that journalists seemed to find most interesting about the warnings. And one week out, we did find from just a single email, a 10 to 15% drop in hate speech usage. It dissipated within four weeks, but this was only from one tweet. And this was only from one tweet from essentially accounts with low followers. And so, so this is also, I wanted to end on a good note. This is sort of encouraging about something that might work. Now there's a lot more research we would have to do, how this would be played out if it was done at scale, if it was coming from Twitter, as opposed to our accounts is a whole other thing that I'm happy to talk about in question and answer. But in closing, I just want to say, you know, sort of my big picture takeaway from this is we really want to think about testing rigorously interventions before we implement them. This has to be a part of the pipeline. And if Nisha and Rebecca are talking about the beginning of how we generate ideas, this has to be a part of the lower end before we implement these things and before we put our our weight and our impetus and our endorsement behind implementing them. The last thing I also want to mention is it takes a village to do this kind of research. So I mentioned Mick Yildrum, who's a PhD student at, at CSMAP. Our prior students, Kevin Munger and Alexander Siegel, helped pioneer this method of going out and uh, and using these sock puppet accounts. And then uh, Kevin Aslett, who is a PhD student who's on the job market, was in uh, lead author on uh, the NewsGuard study working with Andy Guess and other people in the lab, and also has been the lead on our uh, on our veracity of news studies. So uh, thanks to all the hard people, hard work that's been put in by lots of people at the Center for Social Media and Politics for me to be able to bring you these results here today. So looking forward to continuing the discussion and thanks so much again for to everyone else for joining today. And last but not least, um, I'd like to introduce Sahar Masachi, who is the co-founder and executive director of the Integrity Institute, which is a new nonprofit bringing together current and former social media integrity professionals to help better, uh, build better social media content. During a four-year stint at Facebook, um, a company uh, I don't know if anybody here has heard of, um, (laughs) he worked on the civic integrity team, which protected elections and deepened civic engagement worldwide. 
Sahar is also an affiliate of the Berkman Klein Center for the Internet Society at uh, Harvard University. And the floor is yours. Thank you. Wow, thank you. Hi, everyone. What a cool group I'm in. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm now on the clock. Okay, so we have a lot of information to go over. We don't have much time. Please pay attention. Uh, first, who am I? So in the past, I worked at Wikipedia, I computers, social good. How do you do all of them at the same time? Uh, so I took a try at working at Facebook and I worked there from 2016 to 2019 and learned a lot. Um, right now I live in Boston, Somerville, uh, but soon my partner and I are moving to New York and we're looking for new friends. Uh, so hit me up if you're in Boston or in New York. Uh, a little bit about what the Integrity Institute is. So we are growing a community of tech workers with experience working at social media companies on problems that lie at the intersection of tech, policy, and society. We'll talk more about that later. We believe in a social internet that helps societies, democracies, and individuals thrive. And we do that through three things. Our first and biggest project is finding integrity workers and building a community. Integrity workers are people like me, whose job was at platforms, fixing all the problems. Turns out there is a whole new field of fixing problems on social platforms. It's pretty cool. We're going to talk about that. Number two, taking this community and enriching, building, disseminating, nurturing the shared knowledge inside the community. Uh, and lastly, sharing this knowledge to the world. Uh, so that's us. Uh, enough of that. Uh, now I'm just going to talk about how I think about integrity work and uh, what this all is. Everyone ahead of me said cool things. And just quickly, I think that the three big ideas that really grabbed me were it's international, content moderation or the onus on individuals is kind of a dead end and test things. And you'll see that reflected when I'm about to talk about. Uh, so we have this giant complex system and we're trying to figure out as a society how to understand it before even trying to fix it. How do we do that? Well, people at the companies have to do it. How do they do it? Uh, they do it basically by tweaking knobs, running tests, and looking at the results. Uh, and the results are shown as a form of uh, A-B testing metrics. So you just try a thing and see how the metrics change. Uh, so you don't have to understand the intricacies of TikTok's feed ranking algorithm or Twitter's feed ranking algorithm. You just change a value, run a test, see, did it make hate speech go up? Did it make it go down? Did it make engagement go up or down? That kind of thing. And that actually works. Uh, that's, that's how companies do it. And a thing that gives you really quickly is this understanding that these A-B testing metrics, the thing that people look at when they try to change a system are the skeleton key to understanding the entire system uh, because that is the thing that they're trying to optimize. So for a lot of things, they optimize engagement. It's like liking, retweeting, posting, sharing, that kind of thing. And you can think of not just the feed of a social platform, but in fact, the entire social platform as trying to optimize a few of these top company A-B testing metrics. I hope that makes sense. We're gonna move on. When you think about it, what's happening is almost like a, a gravity well, like, you know, the old Einstein, like rubber sheet, rock, well, that's the system that is being built and it's incentivizing things that lead to lots of engagement on the platform. And that means things that typically tend to be bad because it's just one of those things, things that have lots of engagement tend to be bad. And uh, a lot of the fixes that you hear about are kind of about like putting little barriers or little like barricades near the top of this gravity well to stop people from falling in, but they'll just find a way around them because the, the, the potential energy is still there. So this has some organizational implications too. The job of an integrity team is to say something like, hey, everyone's trying to squeeze the most engagement or whatever it is out of the system. Maybe we should try and optimize for something else a little bit. I don't know if you're familiar with the term hill climbing, like the whole company is, is hill climbing towards a local optima of a metric and integrity teams say, well, maybe we shouldn't, we should like move off the top of the hill. This creates really strong incentives for everyone else at the company to try and jump back on the hill. And so what they won't do necessarily is just revert your changes. But what they can do is just like keep changing the knobs until they, by accident, come up with a, a configuration that undoes what you do as a team. This gets to understanding the organizational dynamics inside these companies and organizational behavior, I think, is the, the real question here. So uh, that's the big reason, I think, that change doesn't happen. But there's a few others. Uh, one is you could say like 
the lobbyists or the policy teams at companies, right? Like we can't do this change because Tucker Carlson will be mad. We can't do this change because it will complicate our relationships with the government of India, that kind of stuff. And that's really real. And we can talk more about that later. So in terms of how to fix this, I think the big fix is organizational. These companies are machines for optimizing a metric. And if you get them to adopt a better metric as a whole company, they'll optimize it. If you had really high quality integrity metrics that every department in the company had to move up, then they would move them up. And what we're seeing is not that level of excitement at many companies because integrity is at odds with growth and some other, some other things. So my job as an integrity person was not necessarily to think about, you know, highfalutin theories about why the company wasn't letting me do what I wanted. Uh, my job was to do actual fixes and like, think about, you know, implicitly, like what's the most positive change we can make that doesn't piss off demagogic media figures or make our engagement metrics go down. And I think that in venues like this, people want me to give those examples. And I tend to say, well, let's talk about like why I wasn't allowed to do it in the first place. Um, but just to whet your appetite a little bit, a way to think about a social media platform, I think for me is this is a city of atomic supermen. You know, people are flying, they're teleporting, they're cloning themselves. Uh, we live in a world where, you know, you can create a robot army of fake accounts and no one can tell the difference without close examination. How do you police a city like that? It's really hard. Uh, and content moderators, the, the sort of policemen, like, you know, it's hard for them to, to police this infinite city of like billions of people uh, with human scale tools. And so I think the first, the first thing that someone needs to do is just change the rules of, of gravity a little bit. You know, maybe you shouldn't be able to have many fake accounts, maybe make it harder. Maybe someone who shows up to the platform doesn't have the same kind of access to features that someone who's like built trust over years has, right? Maybe you shouldn't be able to, I don't know, post in a hundred groups an hour until you've matured your account in some way, stuff like that. But those are some ideas and, and there's a lot more. And people like me, integrity workers have tons of ideas, many that we've tried and tested um, and many that we weren't allowed to test or didn't have the time or budget to. And so, so the question is like, how does society interact with this? Because what you don't want to see necessarily is a congressman, you know, grilling, I don't know, Adam Lasseri and saying, will you right now promise to implement my pet design idea? That's really bad. Speaking personally, I think it would be very cool if we created metrics for how these companies are doing on these kinds of problems using data that they divulge to the public and say like, I don't know, Reddit, your integrity metrics are doing really good this quarter, great work. Or like, I don't know, TikTok, your integrity metrics are ticking upwards and we wanted to see a 50% reduction year over year, like you're in the doghouse. Like uh, if companies are really good at optimizing for metrics, we need to get them to like optimize for better metrics. I have 40 seconds. Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of other things to say, um, but I guess to, to close up, there is a profession of trying to make things better that thinks about stuff like this. At companies, they're called integrity workers. They're wonderful, and we should think about how to support them and how to like understand this because I think it is a new kind of knowledge and a new kind of work that we're just starting to see. And at the Integrity Institute, we're excited to find these people, support them, build a community, and be a bridge from integrity workers to the rest of the world, uh, which is what I'm doing now. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everybody. And uh, wow, what a vast field we covered. Um, in the first portion of the panel. Uh, one thing I'd like to get to before I get to the audience question is the question at the heart of this panel. Um, because we know a lot about the problems that we've outlined here. Um, we've studied them for many years. We've seen them on the ground. We've encountered them personally um, in many cases. And when we have conversations like this one, it's really important that we don't start from scratch. Uh, we don't start from zero. Um, instead, incorporate the knowledge uh, that we've already outlined. To that end, um, I want to note that we know a lot of the symptoms of this problem. We know that 
harmful online misinformation or even hate can be financially profitable. It can be politically profitable. And we also know that as much as we talk about automated accounts or anonymous accounts, much of this is public um, and done under real names. For political purposes, we can track. Um, so perhaps the question that I'll pose is looking at the um, solutions and harm reduction strategies that we've done in the past. Um, are there ones that were effective or maybe even complete failures um, that uh, we can take from um, and learn going forward? Some of this we've already covered, but I'm thinking um, about projects like Crosscheck, Africa Checked, and the Election Integrity Partnership, where we've seen we've seen crisis response uh, when we know that there will be crisis. Maybe, Niyusha, uh, I'll uh, start with you and we'll go from there. Thank you very much, Jane. So as you were thinking, I was thinking about the most recent ones. But um, for example, I'm thinking about, well, think about comparing, for example, the identifying harmful speech online around the world, right? So it really depends on the region. It really depends on the uh, presence of the platform in that country uh, or in that region. So for example, in Latin America, it's been for certain countries, uh, all the countries except for, I would say, Brazil, it's been much easier for them to have a conversation and dialogue with the platforms. And the platforms have been much more ready, but also um, very fast in the response, right? So evaluating the, the, the harmful content and making sure that the content is taken down. And special particularly when it comes to um, harm that's been or harassment towards activists and journalists. So I see that as a success uh, in that part of the world. So it's not always negative. I would say that in the case of Brazil, it's much more complex. Um, maybe it has to do with um, the institution as well, the government, uh, governmental institution, but they, they, it's been much more, uh, much slower for them, and they've been much more successful in, in basically contacting the platform's headquarters than, than over here. It has a lot to do with also um, who is contacting which platforms. So the usual suspects, for example, those are part of the trust, um, trusted partners programs are not the smaller organizations have a much easier, like they you know they're part of the, they took part in RightsCon or IGF, and they have a personal contact. So they have a much easier time to be able to address and kind of engage with the platforms. I would say that in the case of East Africa, it's been, it's been extremely, extremely difficult. And not until, um, I would say, a couple of years ago, you, you had the policy development person, one person for all of Africa uh, in London, not even on the African continent. And it wasn't until just recently that they you know, basically appointed somebody and put them in. The, so it really depends on the presence of, of, the, of the company in, in that region, but also when they hire somebody who is um, a local person and who has a, a local and contextualized understanding of of, um, of the region. You see the same thing about, like, for example, the responses in, in Sri Lanka. They were able, but it was post-conflict and post-crisis well, conflict post -crisis that they, they finally, you know, switched their methods and then hired somebody who was from Sri Lanka to respond a lot to, um, to respond to the issues, but also to evaluate the content online. So it, it's really, it, it, that context is really important. And that inclusion of the expert from that part of the world who understands the language, who understands what is harmful in that language. For example, what is harmful in an Arabic that's used in Saudi Arabia is completely different than the Arabic that's used in Somalia, right? So you cannot just say, oh, we have Arabic now in our content moderation, um, then we're good. So it's, um, that's really key, that contextualization. And maybe like a, database or a data entry of, of different kind of, um, depending on the context of content that's harmful in that region, that could be uh, helpful. Like, I'm not saying we have the, you know, we have all the answers, but um, sharing knowledge from the different stakeholders and thinking about, you know, what has worked, like exactly to a question, what has worked in, in Paraguay that could be applied to maybe Sri Lanka that could thought about in South Sudan or Myanmar could be helpful, but also in think, thinking about not getting to that crisis, right? So we had, for example, an early alert system where as soon as that content was, in, for example, Ethiopia. Yeah, the content has been going on since 2020, but they've been reporting harmful content in the early, um, like January, February of, of 2020. But yet it's been completely disregarded by Western news you know, media, but also um, 
the content platforms and it's led to what it is right now, right? A complete mess and of misinformation um, and complete like misunderstanding of what the conflict is all about. So um, we saw the same thing about Myanmar. It took months for the platforms to respond to it. So I think that before we even get to the crisis, if there's an alert system that, that can help us to understand what's happening and maybe an independent body that can help to evaluate this um, would be extremely useful. It's really striking that you say we need to get there before the crisis, because, of course, thinking back, um, however long we choose to think back, but um, almost always these problems are particularly acute during crises. And that's because of the data void uh, concept that uh, that we've already uh, brought up in this conversation. And I think one interesting thing uh, that uh, particularly Joshua said is that you can't just tell people to look for good information because access to accurate, swift information is not equal globally. So it's not always um, the solution that we can turn to. And it's also a little bit discouraging that even when we're looking at solutions outside of tech companies, we need some some amount of tech company buy-in because they are their platforms and they're we are very limited in what we're able to do without social media companies' participation. I want to take a question from the audience that I think dovetails really nicely. Uh, which is uh, what are the ways that we can create better collaborative environments um, in the next year or so between academics and industry researchers and designers? And Rebecca, I know you've talked a a little bit about this um, in your introduction. So maybe I'll throw this one to you to talk about your project and how we can extrapolate from it. Yeah, I think that there are lots of opportunities. We're starting to see some, um, some of these things take fruition and be developed. And, and of course, you know, I'm on the call here with Josh, who's leading, co-leading all of the work on the Facebook election 2020 research project, which I'm part of, which is a collaboration between Facebook and uh, independent external researchers to really dig into important questions about Facebook's impact on uh, the American elections in 2020. Um, but there's so much more that we can do and we need to be creative about. And I think that I saw um, in the question and he was asking about a number of these things that, that could be really, really fruitful. Um, I think the key to making this work though is that we need to think from the beginning about the mechanisms that we put in place for those sorts of discussions and collaborations to get out to the public. Um, you know, so the beauty of this, this election 2020 project is that we're undertaking the research, it's pre-registered, we're committed, and we have a commitment from Facebook to publish everything that comes out of it. And that sort of thinking needs to be part of every single one of these collaborations from the beginning, because what we have in process now is a lot of academics, a lot of civil society experts, you know, a lot of folks who effectively consult or have ongoing lines of conversation with researchers and others at the platforms. But ultimately there isn't a lot of public learning from that. And that's ultimately what we need, not just because the information needs to get out to the public, but also becomes because that becomes a mechanism for accountability. Um, so, you know, I'm constantly thinking about these things that we can build, but for me, that's the absolutely essential starting point. How do we make sure that these things get out to the public? I'm seeing uh, our other panelists nod along. Josh, do you want to jump in here? Yeah, I mean, I'll just, you know, Rebecca talked a little bit about the project and what's going on. I mean, I think the the sort of motivating impetus for this is that exactly as you noted, Jane, like we are always going to come up against limitations of what we can do on our own externally. Um, Nate Persley and I, in our book on social media and democracy, which is a sort of last chapter is all dedicated to this question of data access and how do we do research? We're sort of saying, we, you know, we have a part of that where we say, look, there's like three options we have if we think understanding social media's impact on society is important, right? One is we work 
around the platforms, right? With, you know, scraping and APIs, whatever we can get our hands on, which has all the, which is fraught with all these complications because eventually we're limited in what we can do. And we're sort of at the mercy of the platforms because as my colleagues at NYU have discovered, right? Like you go to do some sort of scraping and all of a sudden you've got, you know, threat of legal litigation and things like that, right? And so that leaves you kind of at the mercy of the platforms or, you know, you spend years building up infrastructure to collect data using an API structure. And then that API structure changes overnight and you've got to start from scratch and, and do that. So that's problematic. And then the second way is you work with the platforms. And that's, of course, you know, is like has all sorts of, of inherent concerns and guard, you know, and things that you worry about when you have to work with the platforms to get this kind of thing done. And then the third option is you work with government to try to get government to regulate access, which up until about six weeks ago seemed like, you know, that was also trying to push the rock up, up the hill forever. But maybe there's a little bit of motion on that. But I think the point that I wanted to add on to what Rebecca said about why we think this is so important is that exactly as Sahar was saying, like, there is a ton of research going on inside these platforms. And we are in a period of time right now where we're at risk of an incredible knowledge drain where scientific innovation is being, the, the fruits of scientific innovation are being limited to people who work for these trillion dollar companies. And the trillion dollar companies can accrue scientific, the development of scientific knowledge. But as exactly as Sahar said, like they weren't allowed to talk about some of their findings and they weren't allowed to conduct some research. So you have the platform being the gatekeeper on both sides, what research gets done and what the researchers are allowed to talk about afterwards. And occasionally we get great papers that come out of platform researchers. Some Twitter some Twitter researchers just published super interesting platform uh, thing about amplification of right versus left-wing politicians in, in Europe. But again, how do we know how many other papers they wrote that weren't allowed to get through to the publication process. And so that's why I think what Rebecca and I are doing here with this Facebook, uh, with the 2020 US Facebook election research project or whatever we're calling it, is wh why we're willing to do it is because we think this is, this is a kind of existential challenge. It's a really different approach for social science research where you have these huge actors in society and they're actors in a political economy sense in the sense that they're big powerful companies that can lobby for policy, but they're also by dint of being platforms, they are where so much interaction around politics and so much social interaction is occurring today. And if we don't take efforts, even when they're risky to try to make some of that knowledge get back into the public domain, we're gonna be in this really kind of asymmetric information environment that I think is incredibly potentially costly for society. It leads to policymaking that's that's being done blind without having the sort of requisite information about it beforehand. And you lead with the kind of things like Nyusha was talking about where we end up with, you know, there's, there's all this knowledge about one part of the world and the other part of the world, there's nothing that we know about in these kinds of things. And so that's, I think, kind of the motivation here. That's why this is, why this is so important to try to do these things. And I'll just say, you know, very briefly, Rebecca brought it up. You know, we have in this project tried to be incredibly self-conscious about the guardrails that we put on it. And Rebecca brought up, I think what's most important is, is everything is pre-registered that we're doing. And we all as an academic team agreed that our red line was that we were not going to do the project if there was any pre-publication review by the company in terms of based on the results of the study. So there's legal and privacy reviews, but the companies, that was our red line for getting involved in the first place. And there are other things that we put in place too, like we're talking about results when they're peer reviewed. We as an academic team took no money. Rebecca mentioned people go to work for these companies as consultants. There's a very, it's a very different world when you go in and work as a consultant and you're getting paid as a company. We took no, no money from the company. So we're trying to think about that. We're hopeful that the lessons we learned from this project will be things we can share with other people. Um, but it's a long, arduous road to try to figure out these models you're talking about. And Sahar, I'm gonna bring you in here um, to address both some of what's said already, but also a recurring question in our Q&A um, box here, which is how can we build incentive structures for these companies um, that optimize not just for engagement, which you touched on, but on something uh, more meaningful? To just add to what Rebecca and Josh were saying quickly, I really believe in this project. My buddy Winter is on the Facebook side uh, managing it, and he is a man of unimpeachable integrity and great skill. And um, you're so lucky to have a chance to work with him. I wish I was still working with him. Uh, shout out to my boy. Also to this, to this question of like industry academic collaboration, I think the Institute, the Integrity Institute is a really interesting model of like a fourth option. Talk to integrity workers who are doing the work 
but with their citizen hats on, not with their company hats on. And uh, one thing that we're trying to figure out internally is how does this work? And like, we have this amazing community of like really cool people who, who have these skills and have worked at platforms. How do we talk to, to people like Josh and CS map? And how do we talk to people like Rebecca and just academics in general? We haven't quite figured it out. So if anyone has ideas, please let us know. And if anyone wants to work with us, please let us know. If anyone wants to give us money, please let us know. To the incentives question, um, the short answer is that in the 70s, mathematicians came up with answers to a lot of these questions. It's called information retrieval algorithms, and they exist. And PageRank is one of the most famous, if not the most famous, implementation of a, one of these algorithms. To some extent, this is a solved problem. You just have to ask the mathematicians who've searched, researched this. And uh, I mean, I think part of it is, is just like, you know, it could be as simple as instead of having engagement metrics as your top company metric, make it in, in one engagement metric, one integrity metric, or a blended metric. We can talk more about it. Uh, we're running out of time, uh, but that's, that's my take. It's tricky to look at the different parts of this problem, right? So we've talked about how people on the outside can try to uh, reframe how we're thinking about the problem. We're talking about how workers for these companies can generate research and reframe that part of the problem. And one thing that we haven't touched on is um, policy solutions from governments themselves, which always is the trickiest problem, almost always the hardest. Whenever I asked about this, everybody kind of just like shrugs their shoulders and looks away a little. <laughs> um, but that's because you don't necessarily want to be regulating speech and you don't want to set a precedent that can be abused in the future. And at the same time, if we're talking about the U.S. government um, in particular, lawmakers need to be aware that whatever policy solutions they come up with, they need to take into account the fact that it will have global ripple effects. Um, so the policy solutions will not only be implemented in the U.S., but globally. So maybe in the last five minutes, um, I will ask the question of whether there are any policy solutions that uh, seem particularly promising when we talk about this issue as a whole. And I'm not quite sure who to pose that to uh, specifically because I think, uh, you know, it's such a big overarching question. But Rebecca, can I single you out here? Yeah, I'm happy to start on this. And in particular, because I've been wrestling with this, not just in the U.S. context, but um, as I think many people here are aware, um, before I moved to, to GW and, and came here to D.C., um, I was I spent eight years um, at Leiden University in the Netherlands and so really got to see firsthand um, the way that European policymakers have been thinking about this. And I've actually been doing a lot of work um, on the Digital Services Act and some other measures that they have in place. And I'll say that one of the things that I'm most hopeful about in the European policy landscape and the ways that it might have broader impacts, not just for the US, but globally, um, is thinking about policies that really focus on risk assessment and harm mitigation in response to risk assessment, um, but do so in a way that is broad thinking so that you can define the potential harms in a way that are flexible so that we're not wed to say, you know, our obsession in at the end of 2020 is on disinformation and political polarization. But guess what? In 2022 and 2023, actually, there are going to be things that are cropping up that are much more important. And in fact, when we extend these questions to the international arena, we really should be thinking about vastly different things. So we need policy that thinks about risk assessment in broad-based terms and, and ultimately grounds those in core democratic values that, that presses the platforms to do their own internal risk assessments and then publish those out, but crucially brings in outside expertise. So does things like provide data access, mandate data access um, for civil society researchers and academics in particular who have expertise in these areas and can highlight what the harms are and just as Josh, Josh was suggesting earlier, begin testing out proposed mitigations for these things. So that's pretty broad strokes, but I think that's the, the, the general sense that we need to start with in order to begin tackling these things from a policy perspective. 
We've got about four minutes left here. Um, so unfortunately, we're coming to the end of this discussion. But Sahar, I'm going to bring you in for the last couple of minutes and then throw it back to Ziv. So I think part of this is like a, a thing I try and have as a mantra is there's nothing new under the sun, really, right? Like what we're talking about are more or less consumer products that, you know, are harmful to society. And uh, when you talk about fixing them, people say, well, doesn't this create our race to the bottom? And like, what if the people who like do good, do the right thing are outcompeted by people who do the wrong thing? And the answer is like, we dealt with that with lead into children's toys, right? We've dealt with this with all kinds of industries. Like society can regulate consumer products fine. When it comes to arguments about speech, it's another thing that gets me a little antsy sometimes because, you know, what we're talking about is behavior. Like spam is a behavior. Uh, making fake accounts is a behavior. Uh, even harassment is a behavior. Companies right now are absolutely regulating behavior. Like, are you allowed to post on Mark Zuckerberg's wall? No, because they made that choice, that design choice. Are you allowed to like, I don't know, spam Ray-Bans on Facebook? No, because they made that anti-spam choice. Um, so it's completely possible. I think from a very broad view, all we need to do, uh, or what, one thing we can do, is like get a really good map of how these companies work and how this sort of system works. Uh, find a way to quantify and understand like what harm they're causing to society. And once we have those, we have an array of policy, tried and true policy options for how you deal with pollution, how you deal with uh, antisocial behavior, and we can just deploy them. Uh, that's my optimistic take. Well, it's always nice to end on an optimistic take. Um, from the outset, we said that this would be a complicated conversation because it's a complicated problem. But I do think that we've covered a lot of really interesting ground here. So thank you to the panelists um, and thank you to our audience as well for their smart and informed questions. Um, Zeev, I'll leave it to you to close us out. I think we're just about uh, two minutes away from our hard stop. Uh, yeah, I just wanted uh, before we before we close to say a few quick thanks uh, first to you, Jane, for your incredible moderation. It was that sort of moderation where really you were just a panelist who happened to be asking more questions than the other panelists. I wanted to thank our panelists uh, for bringing their really incredible sort of and diverse uh, experiences and expertise uh, and then sharing their time with us today um, to the audience for coming. And then, of course, uh, to Eric and Tasha on our team um, who actually made made this panel happen. So thank you so much. Uh, again, feel free to reach out. And uh, I hope uh, everybody has a, a wonderful um, and restful end of December. Thank you, Bye, everybody. everybody. for having us. Thanks so much. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to the panelists. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.